Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is Glenn Gare from the State University of New York at New Paltz, and we have another episode of the Neepscast, where we discuss evolutionary psychology and the connections to the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. We're very fortunate today to have the legendary Dr. Gordon Gallup from the University at Albany. Uh, Gordon has been studying the evolution behavior interface across a broad array of species going back for decades and has done some of the most seminal work in the field. Gordon, it's great to have you on the show. Glenn, it's great to be on the show and thanks for the very generous uh, introduction. Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, for a little context, um, people should know, I think, that at the very first NEEPS conference, which was in 2000 at, on our campus here in New Paltz, we had uh, two keynote speakers, one of whom was David Sloan Wilson, who spoke on the evolution and religion interface, which was super interesting. And the final event of that conference was a talk that you gave on your research regarding the human penis as a semen displacement device, which was absolutely eye-opening, provocative talk. So I think that really, yeah, I think that your talk really helped. Um, it, it was so intriguing and, and uh, a lot of excitement surrounding that research. And I feel like a lot of the good things that followed from Neeps really followed largely from your talk and your support of the conference over all the years. So in effect, penis morphology is one of the things that got Neeps off the ground. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who, who would have thought? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so you study a lot of different things and you've studied a lot of things across your career. I know today you wanted to talk a bit about the evolution and health interface, um, which I think would be great. So maybe you can uh, give us your thoughts on that and we'll see where we go. Sounds good, Glenn. I think one of the biggest impediments to clear thinking about evolution, particularly among uh, students that take courses in the impact of evolution on behavior nowadays, is to assume implicitly or otherwise that <clears throat> the way things are now are, is pretty much the way things have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Um, but let's take, let me just take a couple of examples. <clears throat> it's fashionable nowadays for uh, many people, particularly females, to remove their pubic hair. Pubic hair removal uh, is, a, is a very recent vintage. If you go back and get a, an issue of Playboy, that was printed in the early 1980s, you'll find that all of the nude models have a full ensemble of pubic hair. They didn't even, they didn't even trim their pubic hair, let alone remove their pubic hair. But because pubic hair removal has become so fashionable among women, you almost get the impression that there are a lot of females, undergraduate females, that think this is the way things have always been. And the reason it's a very recent vintage is that during human evolutionary history, we didn't have scissors or razors or tweezers or lasers or bikini wax. Mm -hmm. and, and pubic hair evolved for two reasons. One is 
pubic hair is a puberty signal. And so on a glance, the presence or absence of pubic hair would be an index as to whether somebody was reproductively viable or not. Mm -hmm. And obviously under those conditions, males that, 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 that engaged preferentially in sexual behavior with females that had pubic hair would have left more descendants than males that were indifferent to the presence mm -hmm. or absence of pubic hair. And they would have left far more descendants than males who preferentially attempted to have sex with females that didn't have pubic hair. Males that mated preferentially with females that didn't have pubic hair would have been pedophiles. The presence or absence of pubic hair during human evolutionary history was one of the principal distinguishing features between the genitals of adult, reproductively viable females and prepubescent females. The sure. same thing is true nowadays for uh, C-sections. C-sections, optional C-sections, elective C-sections, have become an increasingly popular way to have babies, to, in, to, to produce, to, to accomplish birthing. So rather than undergoing a vaginal delivery, which may take more time, increasingly many females opt for uh, uh, elective C-sections. And, and in some instances, in some hospitals, as many as 70% of all the births occur nowadays as a result of elective C-sections. During human evolutionary history, C-sections were not an option. If there was a particularly difficult delivery and the mother couldn't deliver the child, both the mother and the child would have died. So nowadays, emergency, medically necessary C-sections can save your life, but optional C-sections can compromise the health and viability of your child by passing through the birth canal in the case of a normal delivery the baby takes some of the vaginal fluid into its mouth and contained in the that vaginal fluid are all kinds of microorganisms mm -hmm. that now jump start the baby's immune system and colonize the baby's uh, gastrointestinal tract and improve uh, healthy immune function. So there's growing evidence to show that babies that are born by C-section, particularly if it's elective C-section, are compromised mm. in terms of their immune function and uh, all kinds of autoimmune diseases and asthma and uh, so on and so forth. So, so both of those examples, the example of um, pubic hair removal and the prevalence of C-sections, those are both examples that are highly health-related that clearly map onto um, what we would call evolutionary mismatch. So. Exactly. Um, the, and the mismatch idea really is something that only makes sense when you start thinking about things from an evolutionary perspective. So um, maybe if you could kind of give a, uh, like, what is your definition of mismatch and how important do you think it is for us to sort of 
um, take steps to make things better in our world today. Well, you need, in order to be able to appreciate the existence of mismatches, you need to be able to project yourself back in time to try to envision what used to be the case during human evolutionary history. Another case in point would be bottle feeding. Nowadays has become an increasingly popular option, particularly in the face of the fact that uh, in, a, in many instances, uh, in order to make uh, ends meet, uh, both, both uh, the father and the mother have to, uh, have to work. But the problem with bottle feeding is that <clears throat> bottle formula is not nearly as good for the baby as breast milk. And they simply haven't been able to duplicate the ingredients of breast milk in formula. Um, so it compromises the well-being of the, of the child nutritionally. But bottle feeding also compromises the health and well-being of the mother. Mm. Mothers that bottle feed are at an elevated risk of becoming overweight in late, later life. Mothers that bottle feed instead of breastfeed their infants are also at greater risk of developing breast cancer in mm. later life. It's almost a, an, a, 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 an instance in which you, it's, it's use it or lose it. Mm. And mothers that bottle feed are at an elevated risk of, uh, of postpartum depression. So what I thought I'd, I'd, I'd start with today is to take the way many people nowadays think about fat and pain and fever to try to illustrate evolutionary mismatches and, and mismatches between the way think, people think about things now in contrast to the way things used to be in the past. And let's start with the fat. Fat's sure. gotten uh, a lot of bad press. But fat is highly adaptive. Hmm. During evolutionary history, <clears throat> there were periods of time in which food was scarce and periods of time in which food existed in abundance. And in order to bridge periods when food was scarce, you needed to be able to take advantage of times when food was plentiful. So by overeating in response to the availability of plentiful food would enable you to store a lot of energy in the form of fat. And you could then use that stored energy to bridge the periods between feast and famine, which makes the capacity to store fat highly adaptive. The problem nowadays is that as a result of modern agriculture, we've created the equivalent of a continuous feast, hmm. where in many parts of the world, food is available in un almost unlimited quantities. Mm -hmm on a continuous basis and, and therefore evolve mechanisms prompt people to overeat. But overeating nowadays has become maladaptive mm -hmm. rather than adaptive. So, so obesity is an artifact 
of modern agriculture. Modern agriculture has, has created a continuous feast. So that's a super interesting way to put it. It, it puts a very different perspective on fat. And, and because fat is the source of a lot of health problems nowadays, most people have gotten the impression that, that fat is not adaptive. But quite to the contrary, for 99.9% .9 of human evolutionary history, fat was highly adaptive. So that puts fat in a very different perspective. The amount of body fat is also critically related to reproductive function in, in human females. The absence of adequate stores of body fat can undermine uh, reproductive function in human females. Starvation diets uh, and things like that can frequently lead to uh, periods of anovulation in which you're incapable of having, uh, having children. Now let's turn to pain. <clears throat> A lot of people think that pain is something to be avoided. And and that's certainly true. But the reason it's true is that the capacity to experience pain in the first place is highly adaptive. And the reason it's highly adaptive is that pain hurts. Hmm. And therefore, when you experience pain, that prompts you to learn to avoid situations that led to pain in the past. And it prompts you to refrain from engaging in behaviors that led to pain in the past. And the, the necessary stimulus for pain is usually tissue damage. So if you, if you learn to, in, to, to refrain from uh, engaging behaviors that produce tissue damage mm -hmm. in the past or to avoid situations that led to tissue damage in the past, you'd be much better off hmm. because tissue damage threatens your biological integrity. The classic case in point are people who are born congenitally insensitive to pain. Hmm. And although that might seem like nirvana, it might seem like like the, like the best of all possible worlds to live in a world that was pain-free, it turns out that people born congenitally insensitive to pain wind up being horribly scarred and mutilated and have abbreviated lifespans. Mm -hmm. And it's because they do things that are not in their biological best interests. They don't learn in response to pain to do things that they shouldn't do. So pain is, can, be highly, can be highly adaptive. Uh, and, and it's interesting to think about different parts of the body as showing different degrees of insensitivity to pain. And parts of the body that are highly sensitive to pain more often than not turn out to be parts of the body that are critically related to your reproductive success. Yeah. And let's, let me give you two examples. Your eyes. If you get a, a tiny piece of debris, a tiny piece of dirt in, in your eye, it can be extraordinarily painful. The same item of, of dirt or debris underneath your fingernail wouldn't even be detectable. Hmm. And the reason for that is that the integrity of your eyes are of paramount, or were and continue to be, of paramount importance to your, not only your reproductive success, but to your 
your, your viability. The same thing is true of testicles. Any male can tell you that testicular pain is excruciating and you can experience testicular pain in response to otherwise innocuous testicular insults. It doesn't require a serious testicular insult. Even a minor mm -hmm. testicular insult will trigger acute testicular pain. So, so you, could, you could think about creating uh, an evolutionary homunculus yep. based on what parts of the body are either highly sensitive to pain, moderately sensitive to pain, or insensitive to pain. And that, I would predict, would map onto parts of the body that were highly important, moderately important, or not very important yeah. when it comes to your eventual reproductive, uh, reproductive success. I think that's, that's a brilliant idea, and I feel like there's a paper just waiting to happen on that right now. That'd be a fun thing to do. Absolutely. Now, wow. let's, now let's turn to fever. Sure. Parents, when, when children get fevers, the typical response on the, parent, on the part of the parents is to, is to give the, the, the child uh, over-the-counter uh, uh, pain medication, which has the effect, in many instances, like aspirin and Tylenol, of alleviating fever. Fevers, fevers diminish. The problem with that approach is that fever evolved to fight pathogens. Fever is an evolved mechanism that enables you to resist the, the infection of, of, of body parts due to pathogens. So it's, it's nature's way of raising the temperature of the body to kill the pathogen. So by, by attempting to fight fever and alleviate fever by giving kids analgesics, it makes, you may be leaving the child defenseless with respect to what would otherwise be highly adaptive, evolved means of fighting pathogens. Hmm. So, so I, I know so that fever, that's... Yeah, although, although pain is something to be avoided and fever may be something to be avoided, there are mechanisms that are associated with both the onset of pain and the onset of fever that make them highly adaptive. Sure. Um, and, and I know that Randy Nessie, who's um, often credited as one of the founders of the field of Darwinian medicine, often right. uses the, the fever example um, as a classic ex example. And one fact that I heard him speak about at some point, which is kind of intriguing, is that um, in modern medical schools, there's almost no curriculum whatsoever regarding the evolution and health interface. And just hearing you talk about these, you know, these three simple things that are just basic aspects of the human experience, uh, it really suggests that we should probably have some, uh, some concern about the idea that our medical doctors, generally speaking, 
don't know this stuff, aren't trained in this stuff. I think evolutionary medicine should be featured prominently on uh, on on curriculum in, in various curricula in different uh, medical schools uh, without a knowledge of the the history of human evolution and contemporary mismatches that we have to contend with in many instances you just don't have the 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 necessary perspectives right in order to do a really competent job when it comes to dealing with a variety of medical problems that may have nothing to do with medicine per se and everything to do with evolutionary mismatches. Mm -hmm. Another another classic case in point is the is the the notion among many people nowadays that uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Hmm. And there's increasing evidence that healthy immune system function on the part of children requires immune system challenges. That's what a vaccination is. It's an immune system challenge. Hmm. And and children that are raised in relatively germ-free environments become immune system challenge uh, un, they're not immune system challenge and they're immuno they're immuno compromised mm-hmm. as a consequence children for example children that suck their thumbs turn out to be healthier than non thumb suckers mm. children that bite their fingernails tend to be healthier mm. than children that don't bite their fingernails Children that are, that are given pacifiers by their parents, where the parent puts the pacifier in his or her own mouth before giving it to the child, are also healthier. Wow. And, be, and that's because all of these represent the introduction of, of, of germs into the baby's mouth and into the baby's or the child's gastrointestinal tract. And... That then produces immune system challenges and jump starts immune, healthy immune system functions. Mm. Gosh, I, I wish I would have heard you talk about that when our kids were babies years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we would boil those pacifiers every single night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you dropped it on the floor, you'd wash it off before you gave it to the child. Oh, right? my God, especially <laughs> if it had dog hair on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of dog hair, the other interesting thing that's come to light recently is that as the number of different species in a household with pets mm-hmm. as the number of different pets of different species goes up there's a corresponding increase in healthy immune system mm. on the part of the children gosh i will think about that next time i'm vacuuming the dog hair that's <laughs> an explosion exposure to different species therefore yeah. gives you a more complete set of immune functions yep um, and I know there's, there's been, I just read a chapter all about this in a uh, new book by David Sloan Wilson, which is called This View of Life. And he, everything that you're talking about is, is discussed in there. And he talks about all kinds of research um, 
in all different parts of the world that this is, you know, this is really becoming a more and more well understood, well documented phenomenon. And it flies so much in the face of how we do things on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it has, um, the, it has the potential to revolutionize the way yes. we think about health and immune system function and, and, and even many aspects of, of modern medicine. Let's, let's take host manipulation as another case in point. There are, there are a variety of pathogens that have evolved means of manipulating either the behavior or the biology of the host so as to so as to improve the pathogen's ability to reproduce rabies are a classic case in point if you're if 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 you're bitten by a rabid animal the saliva contains some of the rabies virus. And if you're bitten by a rabid animal and you contract the virus, you in turn, after the virus gets settled into your nervous system, will now become rabid and hyper-aggressive and you will bite other Mm -hmm. animals. So that functions to promote the reproductive best interests of the rabies virus. Same thing is true if you get a cold and you sneeze, Mm -hmm. that atomizes the virus and makes it more likely to infect other people. Same thing would be true if if, uh, you develop a rash and you scratch Mm -hmm. the the affected skin and get the microorganisms on your skin and now open a door and it gets on the doorknob or you shake hands with somebody that transmits the pathogens to other people. Gonorrhea is another great example. If left untreated, females with infections of gonorrhea, the gonorrhea will get up into the uterus and into the fallopian tubes. And once in the fallopian tubes, it'll create scar tissue in the fallopian tubes that will block the fallopian tubes. And it leaves the female infertile. incapable of reproducing. Now you might ask, how could that possibly work to the gonorrhea's best interest? Well, by sterilizing or, or, or leaving the female infertile, the female will be less likely to get pregnant and more likely to remain sexually active as a means of propagating and spreading mm the gonorrhea virus. Well, exactly the same thing in a very different way has recently been discovered for uh, fever, or not fever, for the flu. Mm -hmm. It turns out that if you contract the flu, there's roughly a two-day incubation period where you remain asymptomatic. But during that two-day incubation period, you can spread the flu virus even though you don't realize you've got the flu. And there's been recent research that shows that for people who contract the flu virus, for the two-day incubation period, they spend more time with other people and they spend more time in crowded uh, areas. Fascinating. And that enables the flu virus to be spread to many more 
hosts. Hmm. So if you ask, if you have people fill out questionnaires, people that got the flu, and have them fill out questionnaires about what they did during the two-day period that preceded the onset of the symptoms in comparison with controls that didn't get the flu during a comparable period of time, you find that people with the flu virus are much more gregarious, much more likely to be with other people, and much more likely to go to crowded spaces. So it's another example of host manipulation. So parasites and pathogens of all several varieties have the capacity to co-opt our nervous system and our behavior Mm -hmm. so as to promote their own reproductive best interests yep so so the way that evolution dovetails with human health is broad reaching i think that there are so many different angles on that and there are so many different uh, research questions that um, that are raised, like just listening to you talk now, I've come up with like five studies that I feel like I want to go ahead and and do. Um, uh, I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it has just this amazing uh, repercussions and and implications for how we think about uh, modern medicine. There's no question about it. Yeah. Let me leave you with another thought. Sure. This is something I've always been very curious about. When somebody has to go to the hospital for purposes of some kind of medical intervention, so surgery, appendectomy, or or what have you, friends and family members frequently congregate in the hospital, in the waiting room, Right. And, and I've always been struck by the fact that this seems to be almost a ritualized kind of behavior. But it seems like it's non-adaptive. It's, it's, it's non-functional. I mean, if, if one of your friends or one of your children is undergoing a, an important surgical operation, it's, it, the probability is virtually zero that in the course of the surgery – the attending physician is going to come out and into the waiting room and ask somebody if they can come in and give them a hand. Right. That's right? a good point. <laughs> and, and, and this also happens when women are, are, are pregnant and are in labor. Yep. Once they're, once they're taken into the delivery room, they're all people are in the, in the waiting room and so on and so forth. And, and he's not going to come in, come out and ask for, ask for assistance. So, what do people gain as a result of this? Well, I think it's, it's a byproduct of the situations that used to exist during human evolutionary history when people were either sick or injured. And if you sustained a, a serious injury, you'd be compromised with respect to predators. And therefore, if if family members and friends congregate around the injured person, they could run interference yeah. predators. And the same thing would be true for women in labor, undergoing birth. Absolutely. So much Absolutely. of our contemporary behavior may be still driven by conditions that existed during our evolutionary past.
Yeah. And in 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 those contexts, they were highly adapted. So it's another mismatch. It's not a mismatch that has negative medical implications, but it's nonetheless an interesting. Yep, absolutely. Mismatch. Never thought about that one before. Uh, Gordon, I got to say, it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you. And all these examples are just tons of food for thought. Um, so here on the Neepscast, we are asking our guests to end with an evolutionary psychology themed haiku. And I understand that you've prepared one for us. I did. I think I, uh, I think I sent you a copy, didn't I? Yes. Do you have it? Let me see. <laughs> there you are. Okay. You want me to read it for you? Sure. Okay. This is Gordon Gallup's Evolution Haiku, everyone. Fat, pain, and fever. Nail biters always prevail. Be retrospective. <laughs> so there you go. Gordon, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to, uh, to future conversations um, moving forward. Glenn, it's, it, the pleasure's been all mine, and it's always a treat to talk with you. That's for sure. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been the Neepscast. <laughs>